This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 41, recorded on December 19th, 2017. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can send us an email. You contact me, Jim, at TheAverageGuy.tv. Really, the better way to do it is just contact Christian. He's the brains behind the operation here. Send him, e- send him an email. Not spam, but an email. Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can find me on Twitter, at Jay Collison. And Christian is out there as Borg Whisperer. I love that. Christian, I love that. Uh, it's awesome. love that handle. Yeah. yeah. Suits you well. TheAverageGuy.tv, powered by Maple Grove Partners, both web hosting and our and all the bandwidth that we do for the podcast. Maple Grove Partners get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust, optimized for WordPress, and optimized for podcasting. Get more information, maplegrovepartners.com. For podcasters, the basic plan starts at $10 a month. Super easy, super affordable. Love to have you out there. And I'll drop in there that uh, this month or through through January 31st, we're running a promotion for the holiday season. If you enter the promo code Jingle when you order a uh, web and email bundle, which is you get a hosting account with built-in email, you'll get 10% off your order. So that's running uh, today through the holiday season and through the month of January. So nice. Jingle, little- how, do you, how do you spell that? Jingle like jingle bells, G J I N G L E E just like that, it sounds. And that's that's on our uh, standard hosting and email package as a bundle. So uh, that'll nice. get you get you pretty well set up and some holiday cheer to go along with it. All right, sounds good. Jingle get you in, and of course that's what we use here at theaverageguy.tv. It it uh, really handles both home gadget geeks and cyber frontiers. Love to have you head out there, give it a shot, and of course you know Christian. If you have questions. Head up to maplegrowpartners.com. Christian, we are at the end of 2017. It's hard to believe we have made it. I think we've probably gotten three or four Cyber Frontiers in. It's always a good opportunity at the end of the year to kind of look ahead a little bit as we think about some predictions of some things coming ahead in the world of cybersecurity. Uh, we've had a lot of past trends, and just it's been a, it's been a hackathon year, <laughs> literally. Yeah. I mean, things have just been hacked on hard. Uh, but we're going to spend a little time looking back, but mostly looking forward. Where do you want to start? Hey, we've gotten a whole seven chosen for 2017. Oh, let's really? Just, let's just be right. clear. Most of you them know, uh, before the first half of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it's all fair. By, by the time we get out um, this one, it'll be eight. So uh, we'll uh, we'll have to ramp up our expectations here yeah, for I 2018. I think it's good. I think yeah. uh, quality over quantity. Yeah, that that's the theory. So we're just, I figured we'd, Really, you know, technically Cyber Frontiers is both cybersecurity and data science. And I think both of those are going to be pretty well reflected in the trends of uh, what's coming up in 2018. Um, There's a lot of interesting news headlines that have happened over the last month that I think may influence uh, some of the trending that's come out here. So, um, you know, we've had net neutrality be repealed? Uh, what types of implications is that going to have uh, last minute? Um, where are we going to go from there? Just kind of the traditional things that uh, folks uh, know that I love to do, like what are the dumbest passwords of the year? Uh, the list got even more amazing this year, believe it or not. It got more amazing. Um, so I just thought I'd, I'd kind of cherry pick some topics that reflect things we've talked on the show this year and talk about the uh, trends associated with them and um, let the cards fall where they may. So um, sound like a plan to you? Yeah, let's do it. Where do you want to start? So let's just start with the, you know, kind of top trends that I saw across the internet um, for cybersecurity predictions. Um, It's kind of funny. I don't really know what that means yet. Um, One of the big ones that I saw out there was that the um, decline of password authentication would only continue to rapidly increase. Um, This is really an interesting concept to me only because we've been talking about this trend happening for quite a while. Um, And we're, in my opinion, we're obviously still not there but I guess the question is from 2016 predicting on 2017 to now, um, has that trend accelerated or stayed about the same? 
I would argue that in terms of the market, what the market is doing, the market has definitely accelerated in terms of the price point at which we can start to offer these services. And so, you know, go and look at your common forms of two-factor authentication that you see in businesses or otherwise. You can now get the um, 2F implementation of YubiKey for as low as $18 a chip, right? So that's substantially um, a lower price point of probably what we would have saw for the equivalent technology offering a year ago. That definitely, at the end of the day, um, price is going to be one of the biggest indicators of how fast consumers continue to adopt the technology. And one of my major concerns with this has always been, we're still not at a place where companies or online sites or wherever can mandate um, two-factor authentication when it involves like your consumer stuff. So it might be really nice to have two-factor authentication on your bank, but they might not be able to force it. Um, it might be really nice to have two-factor authentication on your Google account, but they're not going to make you set it up. So we, I get to this interesting question in terms of the trend in the next couple of years, not just 2018, which is, are there going to be any companies that choose to take a leap on mandating multi-factor authentication on their services and something that's traditionally not seen as a business or enterprise only offering, right? So I think about the Facebooks and the Googles and et cetera. And I kind of have two criteria that um, I think is important to consider when we talk about mandating the use of multi-factor authentication. I think it should come at a very low burden to the consumer. Um, And I think we've seen that the usability and the existing adoption rates have made it easy to do that in the sense that, you know, now Google kind of almost immediately after creating a new account will basically tell you, hey, you know, you don't have your two-factor enabled. Here are the easy steps that you can do to enroll. Um, My second requirement, however, I think is a bit harder to meet. And that is a consumer should not be financially burdened in a significant way to utilize multi-factor on a service that's otherwise offered for free. So when you look at something like a Google or a Facebook, how can you guarantee that a service is offered quote unquote for free and yet mandate multi-factor? And I think people say, well, obviously, you know, if you support multi-factor and you have your cell phone, then uh, easy, you have, you have a free way of doing it. And it's like, okay, then what happens when the person doesn't own a cell phone? Um, and so I think people go, oh, well, that's not the average guy. Well, it's pretty big population of the types of folks who are on these platforms. And so when I think about, um, you know, Google might not be the best example, but when we talk about the high volume of data breaches that have happened in other big online commercial databases and services, I, I wonder, and I, I haven't done the math here yet completely, But if you add up the cost of a data breach for one of these major companies uh, in terms of logins were exposed and then they could see X, Y, and Z, would the cost of that data breach be more or less than if they had handed out an $18 YubiKey token to every single person in their user database? And my guess is I could find ones that uh, come in at a cheaper price point than what they paid to recover the damages of um, a data breach. And so the question really becomes, will the industry trend in such a way that they can start enforcing it, not just highly suggesting it? And I don't think we're there yet, but I do think that within the next three to five years, you'll start to see consumer-based, you know, the, the, I, you know, services of the masses like the Googles and the Facebooks come up with more clever solutions on how to um, kind of capitalize on that market. Because at this point, I think the technology has become super accessible and super available. And I think people aren't um, as taken aback when they hear the word multi-factor, right? Like if you download your banking app to your mobile phone, you're almost certainly going to hear about having a setup multi-factor and get a one-time passcode sent or whatever it is, right? So I think the next evolution of this naturally is how can we how can we mandate MFA but offer it for free and really 
complete that come full circle on the easy integration that a lot of these companies have provided so far. Yeah, I, I think when you think about a B2B and the business locking down their, you know, the breaches have all happened in, in a business context. And it, it doesn't make any sense for businesses to, to cheap out on a, on, a, on a key, on a piece of hardware, on implementing it in, you know, you think most organizations with their employees are going to have a cell phone or some kind of device that it could be put on. Christian, I think though the huge opportunity is at the B2C. And I, I just, I don't think it's reasonable for a Google or a Facebook to issue some kind of, um, some kind of device to the masses. I don't think that's scalable. I think we need to have built-in ways of doing it on the hardware. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm, or they have to access it somehow, <laughs> right? If you have a Google account, you're, you're coming in on a phone or a PC or something, a tablet, and and all of those would have some kind of way, whether it's telephony or Wi-Fi or, you know, because I, I, I think there's also, you know, a huge group of, of individuals who, who don't, um, whose who's only access is via Wi-Fi. Um, and so there's got to be some way. I know when I'm trying to access two-factor on a plane, uh, oftentimes I've connected my laptop to the Wi-Fi and not my phone, and yet the, the two-factor is coming in through the phone. And yeah. it doesn't work, right? I'm lo- I'm, a, I'm essentially locked out. So I, I guess I agree with you. I think we've gotten two-factor working for the for the privileged at this point. I think the privileged in industry, the 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 privileged with the right equipment, the privileged with the iPhone or the Android phones. There is certainly some penetration in this in the third world markets with Android devices. So that's getting out there. But I I think at the, the very bottom. Uh, of the population, they are kind of stuck without a lot of options. And um, and shame on business. Listen, I think. I mean, if businesses are not locking their stuff down, shame on them. They they've got to do this, right? They they don't have choices in this. They've got to pay the appropriate costs to get this done. But when we think about the consumer, the you know, I don't know even know what that number is. I think they have less options. And I think here in the United States, we often think about. Well, just you said this a second ago. Well, they can just have it on their cell phone. Well, I, I, I don't think that's a in, in the United States that don't, that works sometimes. You know, I shouldn't say sometimes. It probably works way more often than we think. But there are huge groups of people underrepresented in that area that will never be able to participate in it. And and let me tell you, nothing changes your outlook on two factor like changing your phone. I mean, I just did that this week. I'm switching phones. And I'm having to go back in and reset up all those those two factor, you know, take them down, re snapshot them. By the way, capture that they'll tell you. Make sure you copy this down. I blew it off the first time, but this time I'm kind of like because of the nice hash problem. I'm kind of like copying those and storing them somewhere that are secure, so that if I do lose my phone or my phone quits working, I've got a way to get in. That's don't blow that off if you're a, if you're a consumer and you're going through the two factor setup. I think it's really easy because you we do this when we click on on user agreements. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just get this thing working, right? So, I think there's some there's some some thoughts there from a consumer standpoint. Yeah, and I think eventually, I my hope is that the human factors catches up here, which is to say, um, you know, I, I think some of the more accessible forms of human two factor, like your biometrics are something that you couldn't roll without having to pay a price, right? Like if, if, if you can make the assertion that webcams are for the most part readily available in these devices without a consumer having to go and get something additional, Correct. then how much easier is it for them to come up with a type of MFA that um, deals with your facial recognition or otherwise? And that of course puts us down the, the rabbit hole of um, major companies like Google sucking up more uh, basically AI and, you know, biometrical data that will allow them to give more tinfoil hats cause for concern um, as it as it pertains to data advertising and so forth. However, um, I think realistically, those are going to be the things that are most accessible to folks in terms of how do you enroll someone that has their body in a keyboard, right? Um, I think that's the point it has to get to to be able to actually make MFA work seamlessly to the point where 
almost any system can be designed with something more than a password, right? Without any real level of thought or effort. And yeah. I think we're, honestly, we're closer to, I would say closer to the 10 year mark before that is really integrated in a way where passwords are a thing of the past. Um, I think that's definitely a longer term thing. Passwords, unfortunately, I think are just gonna have a unruly hold over the technology for longer than people want to admit. I've um, recently, because of the Bitcoin work that I've been doing, um, two exchanges, Bittrex, Polynex, I've signed into, and both of them have verification procedures that that are that require you to take a picture of your driver's license and send that in with then a snapshot of you off the camera, and it goes through some automated processing where they're trying to figure out is that you, and then. I think they're trying to match you to records they can find on the web. So they have you get some information and they're, they're trying to kind of solve that problem of having somebody having to physically validate this information in the run up of Bitcoin over the last three or four weeks. I bet these organizations have done an eight or 10 or a hundred fold business as people have been flocking to the web to figure out what this Bitcoin stuff is. And, and that's interesting. And I think like everything, we've got to test this a little bit. These I, we're, We are way better at two-factor today than we were five years ago when it just didn't exist. It's way better today. Is it the final solution? I think we've got some growing to do. Uh, I, have, I have yet to hear, and maybe you know, I have yet to hear a major hack that has made its way through two-factor. Like someone spoofed the two-factor piece and, and made it work. I, I, I don't know if that's happened yet. Yeah, but, there's certainly been disclosable weaknesses in some two factors, but not to the point where it actually led to that type of confidence. Yeah, yeah. It'll be tested, though. I mean, as it's, 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 you know, I'm noticing a lot more as I even think about my hover account, my buffer account. I'm just trying to think the, the, all the Bitcoin stuff I've been, all those accounts that I've been signing into have offered two factor and I've taken it. And that, you know, it took me about an hour to switch phones because I had to go in and redo that. But I guess I'm encouraged that more organizations are offering this. To your point, though, they're not mandating it. Yeah. And, and until that happens, most of the consumers are not going to err. They're going to err on the side of simplicity as opposed to security. Yeah. And, and you know, the interesting thing, too, with some of those solutions you discussed is, like, what what happens when it when it says you don't match the picture on your driver's license, right? What What is the out there? Yeah, well, I, I didn't. I don't have a beard in the in the driver's license picture, and I do now. And actually, to be honest with you, I both both of those services I have struggled with, and even one of them booted me out and said, "Sorry, we can't verify you because you've you've done it too many times." I'm like, well, now what? Now I probably have to contact their you know their customer assistance. Well, and the other thing too is like if you think about some pictures on driver's license can be as old as like ten years old, right? right? So yeah, how much? facial features change um, that the algorithm detects between an old license and what you look like today. Right. So yeah. And my kids today with facial recognition, my kids end up showing up as me sometimes uh, because of, because the facial, the facial recognition is so similar. Um, I've seen that happen before too. Microsoft and Google both have, have uh, mistaken my son, Tim for me. Now, probably not now, but they would in those cases. So um, Christian, I think we've got a lot of testing to do in this area, and I think it's going to take, you know, I don't know what it's going to take. I, I was going to say, I think it's going to take a major breach, but we've had, how many breaches have we had um, and, and and how bad has it been? And yet we, you know, we're still going to struggle with it. So I I, I agree with you. I, I like where we're heading with two-factor, and I think it makes more sense. We as an organization at Gallup have moved this year before the end of the year. Everybody's two-factor now. And so that's happening in, in the enterprise and, and we're not right. the only ones. There's lots doing it, but so I, I think it's, we're, we're headed in the right direction, but we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think this is something that again, as the economics of it continue to get more affordable, it's going to keep moving in the right direction. Um, second, second major one that I observed is that folks think that IOT compromises will get worse. And I laugh because I feel like this is something we end up talking about almost every single show in 2017. So, uh, either we're not crazy or they're not crazy, which means no one's crazy. Um, so I think this will, I think this is a valid assessment that's being made. Um, I laughed because uh, I got pointed to an article uh, 
on um, who, who's actually behind the Mirai botnet. And it's an article done on uh, Wired about, you know, how these college kids in their dorm room basically built the Mirai botnet and, you know, not for the, not for the grandiose motives that people would typically think like uh, state sponsored terrorism, or they want to drain someone's bank. No, they were trying to get the best deal they could in uh, the world of Minecraft. Right. So um, super funny because it just, the level of sophistication remember, and we talked about the Mirai botnet on this show a, a while back about how it basically hijacked a bunch of IOT devices and created a, a distributed botnet to then launch a DDoS attack. And that was awesome. Um, and just amazingly interesting according to the court documents, because, um, you know, it was able to target an entire range of IP addresses, not just one particular server or website. And, all of these IoT devices were compromised, you know, all throughout the world. Um, the force of gravity that came with the Mirai botnet when it got pointed at a set of targets was, I mean, pretty amazing. Um, they were talking about the uh, topping out of Mirai being around 1.1 terabits per second um, as more than 145,000 infected devices um had unwanted traffic uh, pointing their way. So, and this is coming out of that Wired article as well, but just just a fascinating example of how just when everyone thought that DDoS was kind of this measured, figured out thing, and it's it's now not the cool thing to do on the cybersecurity market, um, three Minecraft lovers in their college dorm room made DDoS attacks uh, awesome again. And so um, I just thought it was funny, uh, to be honest. And I think that... Um, it speaks to this trend of IOT compromises getting worse. And we've talked about in the last show or two as supporting evidence to this, the quality of firmware and embedded devices is just terrible. Um, it really hasn't gotten better. And especially when we did the DEF CON recap talking about what some of the really common consumer devices, whether it's your IP camera or otherwise, um, <clears throat> just not a quality of firmware level that you'd be willing to trust in. And, uh, you know, here's another example local to the show. And, you know, hopefully Mike won't mind. He, he posted publicly in the, in the average guy forums, but so, uh, Mike Weger and I co-host over on, um, home gadget geeks. He had bought this, um, IP camera for his house, right? Like everyone wants to, uh, but he posted on the forums because he noticed weird outbound traffic coming out of his PFSense router. And he only noticed it because he installed the latest automated rule sets from the PF blocker or next gen software, which basically allows you to load predefined blacklists and then any IP inbound or outbound that tries to hit your edge device, you know, will get dropped appropriately by the firewall. And so he had two devices that he could not explain why they were talking to very strange, peculiar traffic. Um, so the first one turned out to be, I believe, nice, nice hash or whatever the Bitcoin flavor of the day was going on on his uh, server was participating in a peer-to-peer -peer network because that's how that mining system works. And the router was blocking certain peer-to-peer -peer connections because those peers were showing up in the blacklist. So it wasn't that his machine was necessarily infected. It was doing a task that he legitimately set it out to do, but some of the nodes in that peer-to-peer -peer connectivity turned out to be no good. Um, this is not very surprising to me because it's the same way with Skype, right? Skype is peer-to-peer. -peer. If you end up randomly having your Skype uh, client participate in the peer-to-peer -peer network with a known blacklist IP, you'll even sometimes see things like Malwarebytes Pro step in and say, hey, we blocked this IP. And like, it's not because you're infected. It's because of something in the peer-to-peer -peer that you're talking to. Um, second one, however, was uh, totally awesome. And what speaks to this point, which is um, we found a device that was talking to a very specific UDP port for reasons unknown to us. And when I asked Mike, hey, what's over at this IP address in your local LAN? He said, oh, that's my IP camera. 
Um, so I laughed because when I looked up the IP address that that local private device was trying to talk to, it was talking back to the device manufacturer in China. Um, and so it's like, why does your personal IP camera need to be regularly making flow talks out to China? And so, um, you know, humorously, the easy answer is to block that traffic. But, you know, Mike was like, oh, I clearly took price point over security in this case. I'm like, yeah, you probably did. Um, But just amazing, right? Because even if the firmware isn't necessarily um, flawed or exploitable, it doesn't mean that the company that is vending it to you has the best of intentions and how they're collecting and using your data. Like to this day, I have no idea why it was making UDP port communications back home to the originating um, server. Um, Honestly, the only remotely legitimate case I can think of for something like that is to check in for firmware updates, but uh, it's super dicey when you're checking for firmware updates over UDP. I'm sorry. There's just, there's really no two ways about that. So um, point of, point of uh, record here too, is that like when I talk about trends and technology, price is always going to be one of the most obvious indicators for how markets will trend in the short term and how markets will trend determines in many respects, how the technology trends for short term consumer gain. And the other big data point here, when we talk about how IOT compromises get worse, it's in part because these devices have become so dang cheap for people to go buy and put in their house. So when someone wants to come along and build an XMRI botnet, the number of devices that will be eligible for the latest zero day exploit will continue to grow and be larger and larger than what the last um, IOT compromise was, right? So we have a problem in both direction. We've made the technology available to the masses at a low price point, which is great, but we've driven in a low quality and expectation of firmware code, which as a result will increase the amount of devices and systems that are eligible to participate in these types of compromises and attacks in the future. So see, this is a very realistic market predicts where this thing is going to head. And that's why I think that this was a super valid call out in the 2018 trends for some of the sites reporting on it. You know, Christian, along those lines, I think we're going to see a trend of because of the rise of both Bitcoin and all the altcoins around it is now way more profitable to be in that space, taking advantage of other people's processors. And so much like you could take some of these devices and turn them into, you know, into bot into a botnet and DDoS machines, many of these, and you, you you kind of look at securing the blockchain with a mobile processor and you kind of go, well, I mean, they're slow and they don't do, they don't do really well. And from a mining standpoint, they're not worth very much. But if you get 145,000 of them doing that exercise, um, all of a sudden that starts adding up just from a dollars and cents standpoint. Two years ago, three years ago, none of that made any sense financially. Today it actually does. Right. And so I think we're going to see a continued use. Uh, DDoS is great and you can do, I mean, there's lots of things they can do with this, but it's. I know it's probably happening already. And I think we're going to hear more high profile um, you know, and I and I think the smart ones are the ones who don't consume 100% of the resources to do this. They just sneak it in. It consumes five or 10%. And if they can get hundreds of thousands of this, um, and malicious, probably not in, in the sense that they're not going to, you know, they're probably not going to take anything from me. Why would they want, they want that thing to live there quietly while it mines, right? I mean, this is one of those very first things. I think where the getting use of CP, CPU power or GPU power can actually be very, very profitable now. Yeah. yeah so absolutely. I think we're going to see a lot more of that, those takeovers, and you're going to hear about, you know, a, a, a botnet network of hundreds of thousands, and they're running 5% on somebody's CPU in the background while they crank out these, these um, algorithms, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you, you bring us into a great segue too, which is about what is the trending of the cryptocurrency markets in 2018. And this has actually been one of the hardest um, areas for me to comment on because I think it's one of the most volatile. So I think predictions made in here, I'm, I'm it's somewhat hedging my bets in the sense that 
this thing has surprised me before. So I'm much more cautious about where I think it's actually going to be in the short term. But again, if so, if we were to, if we were to apply the, uh, the financial market speaks to the technology trend, what we saw with Bitcoin going up to $17,000, uh, or I'm sorry, so, yeah, seventeen thousand dollars per Bitcoin. It's peaked at nineteen, but it's really running sixteen to seventeen right now. Yeah. So I mean, if we talk about you know when I was in sophomore year of college, that was three hundred dollars a Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, I'm super kicking myself that I didn't jump on that bandwagon, right? Um, it's 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 very reminiscent of the uh, you know if only I bought Microsoft stocks when Microsoft first became a company, right? It's like the classic Google. classic yeah. statement, right? Yeah, what, pick your company of choice. But like um, the the people who got into mining early, when people were very skeptical of it, uh, that a it wasn't gonna a it wasn't going to become a legitimized technology. B you would never find a way to properly and legally have it as uh, taxable income with the IRS. All these legal things around it that I think have really shaked out because people have folded to this is the direction the technology is going in. Like the fact that you can now properly file taxes for your Bitcoin. Like there's a lot of legal framework that has moved in around Bitcoin um, now that people are accepting of it. So at least from a from a legal standpoint, um, a lot of maturity happened that kind of framed the landscape. And I think my biggest surprise was seeing how fast that legal landscape got filled in as a void. Now you go in the DC area and you can find dozens of cryptocurrency legal experts. And it's just, it's bizarre, right? We've created a really niche market around that. And it's something I think will get bigger. Um, the, the financial boom of it though, tells me that it has a high risk of being a fad still. And this is just because overnight, something that already is a virtual currency, meaning that like like with any currency, it's the value that you place on it. It's a figment of your imagination solely. Um, the fact that our figment of our imaginations rushed from, you know, a couple thousand to almost 20,000 at its peak in what, like six months maybe? Mm -hmm. uh, that's in the world of bizarro for me. And I'm not really sure what it means. Like what, what on earth does that type of hyperinflation mean? Uh, what does that growth of the currency mean? So th this is the type of supporting evidence in the traditional way I would analyze it screams to me, warning light, this looks like a fad. Um, the things I have to counterbalance that with is that um, a ton of alternative currency coins have been popping up left and right, which either reconfirms to me that it's a fad or reconfirms that people are doubling down and now trying to compete in a, in a free market enterprise. Um, and competition can be one of the strongest signs that's not a fad, because if it's a fad, there's usually one or two big players in a business that fizzle out after several years. Now we're just seeing dozens and dozens of alternative coins, which supports the argument that this is not a fad. Now, maybe maybe the market has a severe correction in Bitcoin in the years to come. And that's the faddish piece I think could be a reality is that someone wakes up and realize, holy cow, why did I place all this non-existent value in the market might course correct? But the course correction that happens is going to be very different, I think, from whether or not the technology continues to expand, which I think we're coming to a point of no return. Um, my data point two for the, the quote unquote point of no return is uh, just this week it was announced that the central banks are going to start holding cryptocurrency in their bank reserves. Like this is the first time a central bank would has ever taken this on, right? So now banks and the SEC, like you're, you're seeing the big financial players and the big banks and kind of the old guard really bend their will to this technology, which to me says, you know, we're passing the point of no return, right? Um, so in 2018, I expect the technology only to solidify further and become more widespread. Um, I do think there's a high volatility chance that there is a major course correction in the worth that people are placing on this currency and what it means in relation to international currencies. 
which to me then will raise the question, will people still see the value in this technology if there isn't a profit motive uh, like there has been in the, especially in the last year, but with mining in general and these other things, right? Like it's very easy for our opinions to become biased because as tech enthusiasts, like we're obsessed with things like mining and making profit off of our basement GPU servers and saying, look at the hundred dollars I made this month running my GPUs which incidentally might cover your heating bill because you like probably don't need to turn the heat on in your house after you're running that. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, that's true. It, it can. It can. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, maybe you found your interesting own ways to justify it to yourself as a fun project, which is humorous because I think people have found interesting ways to justify why it's worth something that is virtual. Um, but when you put all those things aside, like the end of the day, it comes down to, is this technology a better way of transacting money, period, full stop? Like, is it the next gold in the sense that um, it's something that is a safer, more reproducible and verifiable currency and has certain properties that you don't get with paper money or a country's currency, et cetera? Um, so that, that moves into a whole sphere of confusion for me. And I think we're years off from solving some of these things, especially when it comes to... Um, how does Bitcoin look any different than an international currency or just a unidentified currency, right? Because um, this is the first time in our world where we've had <laughs> we've had financial currencies that don't really have any relation to um, a country of origin. So that's yeah. that's something that I think people are going to have to come to grips here pretty shortly on. Yeah. And, you know, so in, in the post show of 336, Uyghur and I have this very long and actually pretty heated conversation about the future of this. And you've said a lot of things uh, that we talked about there. Um, and you use the word hyperinflation as well. You know, Bitcoin's a currency. It, it's, it, the definition of what's happening to it right now is hyperinflation. And uh, the United States government has opted to choose it like property. Uh, like a stock or a house or whatever, so you'll be taxed uh, if you if you hold it, sell it, generate it. You'll be taxed like that, um, like it's a property. But what's interesting to me, Christian, is it's when we think of currency, we think of I think we most everybody in the United States thinks of the dollar or whatever the euro. Think about it, whatever country you're in, and that is not the 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 Federal Reserve system is not a system that can change like a piece of software. In cryptocurrency, at the end of the day, it's a piece of software. And we are watching these altcoins fork quickly. Like, oh, we made a mistake. We're going to hard fork. And, you know, at this block, it's going to change. We've we've right. seen alt, alt currencies actually change their symbol. We've seen, uh, we've watched a hard fork that actually broke the software. So you imagine uh, if Bitcoin, all of a sudden, the difficulty level to mine Bitcoin plummeted what that would mean to its financially, right? That happened in an altcoin. And right. what we see in the rise of Bitcoin gold or Bitcoin cash is an opportunity because people have a difference of opinion of the way these software, these OS, this money, this value OS runs. And sure. they're having, so they have an argument, so they fork, right? It's so different than, our, than, a, than a monetary system is the way it is today. Uh, maybe two or 300 years ago, it was different when the, Systems weren't as big, but you would never see the Federal Reserve move in those kinds of directions as quickly. Shit, they can't even uh, decide on it, how they're going to raise or lower or interest rates. It takes them six months to, think, you know, to figure that stuff out. Much less, like, hey, let's have a hard fork on U.S. currency. I mean, we just would not do that. So it's super interesting, like you're saying, that we've got. I've equated it to we're in the Windows ninety five era of cryptocurrency. Like it's there, it's kind of sexy. Lots of people are using it, but it's buggy, doesn't really work. It blue screens all the time. It has terrible security holes in it. I mean, there's a lot of um, similarities between those two scenarios. When we think about everybody's using it, or a lot of people are starting to use it. People are getting excited about it. I think about all the excitement we had around Windows 95 in those days. But it's really a terrible piece of software that took a decade or two of pounding on it to make it better, right? Some would say it's still not any better. But I think because Bitcoin or because the blockchain is a piece of software, it's going to take a lot of trial and error 
And I, you know, I think Bitcoin will go the way of Facebook. I mean, of MySpace at some point. It's got it's some inherent flaws into it that doesn't make it a great monetary system. If that's what we're going to go to, there are some new altcoins that might. So I, I think I agree with you. Yeah, and you know, the other thing you brought up, which is a great point, is that you know now we're dealing with currency as software, which is kind of scary because when in fact someone does flub up and me- mess up the next code release of whatever the currency coin of of choosing is does that destabilize international financial markets in a way that we've never seen that type of blast radius before? Like that's the real risk we inherit with these systems, right? Um, It's very different than having a single bank compromised or a a single exchange. Now we're talking about the entire currency mechanism. Yeah. It's Um, cash, right? It's currency as a service in a lot, in, in a lot of ways. And what what happens when someone quietly finds the next zero day in a in a currency um, that they can be quietly siphoning off tens of you know pick pick your price pick your price point and the quantity of billions of dollars they're going to quietly silo off and see if no one notices because it's all happening in this kind of stream of conscious thought as I like to say yeah um, well, the nice hash hack wasn't a hack on the blockchain it was a hack on one of the engineers personal. You know, they they came in through a backdoor on his VPN, which should have been secure, and it wasn't. And they came in and was able to exploit the system. It was a human error that caused a $60 million outflow uh, of wallets, you know, and you kind of go, wow, okay, <laughs> that's not a blockchain problem. That now becomes a human problem. The problem with automated vehicles is not the cars themselves. It's the humans that have to drive around them that are, sure. are going to cause most of the problems. So it it's, we all of a sudden now, I, I see why the machines kill us off first. Yeah. It's the humans, right? We are the weakest link in the, uh, in the security. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, it just blows my mind where we're going with that. But Ken, yeah. uh, Ken makes a note in the chat room real quick. He says, but isn't it all traceable? Yeah, it's all traceable, except in, in these, in a lot of these currencies, it's anonymous. You don't know who, you know, where, Yep. In the case of NiceHash, they knew the exact address where it was going to, but it's not. It's it's, and there's some debate on that on whether it's really as anonymous as they think it is. I I think we, you and I, have a common friend who lives in the Washington D.C. area who would say there are ways to on in Bitcoin to trace this thing back and find that person. So even that's debatable. And the thing too is like. Um traceable doesn't necessarily mean reversible. Like, can you reverse the damage done? Uh, it seems very much like a, a forward engine, not a reverse engine, right? Yeah. Like there, it's, it's diffing what changes are happening on the ledger along the way, right? There's well, no one button. How right? could you have any trust if, if, if you could back it out? Like if you could just say, oh yeah, that was wrong. We can back it out. Just that action right. becomes, you know, becomes a, and some of the value of, of these currencies is the is it it's not traceable or it's not it apparently in theory you're not supposed to be able to know who's spending this type deal so there's some value in that right and they just they won't open the door um, there's no door to open it doesn't exist it doesn't have a back door from that from that standpoint uh, allegedly yeah yeah i mean it's interesting too that you know refund refunds are as limited as the people willing to make the exchange on the on the ledger right so good luck getting a refund from a thief right um but you know it's funny too to see the other types of uh security damage that has just come up from bitcoin in in general um one of the predictions that i laughed at for 2018 was that android is going to get massively better in lots of areas including battery life and other things but one of the areas they said they would improve Android in uh, is that the amount of malware would go down for Android because of Google's recent release of Play Protect, which is basically them getting better at vetting software that actually is going on the Play Store. And I laugh at this because at the same time this prediction is coming out, we have yet another article right at the end of 2017 about um, Bitcoin or, or just um cryptocurrency coin malware for Android that physically destroys your phone by installing mining malware on your phone and it overheats your chips on the device until your battery bulges out and your phone gets cooked. Um, 
So the the guy makes a little cash. He breaks your phone in the pro. Like it's just a very destructive, senseless, and confusing source of malware. Because really, how much Bitcoin are you mining off of someone's mobile phone, even as an aggregate of thousands of devices? I can't really imagine it's much. But this is the charade insanity that's come out of this technology. Um, it, it could but- be, Christian. It could literally be thousands of dollars, maybe across but- these devices that. For a hacker, when you, you compare know? though the GPU capability of a phone to the, you know, think about oh, like, right on, no, right on, I get you. How hard, it, how hard it is to get like you know a hundred dollars a month out of three GPUs running in your basement, right? How many phone GPUs does it take to replicate the power of one desktop GPU? I'm pretty sure it's thousands of phones, like yeah. in terms of yeah. the the difference. But right? if you can hack, I mean, if if you can exploit these phones in mass. And you can turn them all on. I mean, it's the same. How many? Uh, it, I guess the DDoS example is a little bit different because they can. They maybe they have more of an impact than they would in mining. But you're right. But but that's a scale issue. You know, if I could get hundreds of thousands, or you know, if I get half a million phones doing this, I can actually do some mining damage, so to speak, on the blockchain. And uh, and they would be wise to not run the not run these algorithms at full speed. Like dial it back a little bit so that it doesn't, you know, you want to keep this on the phone, not brick it. Um, I think that's poor. In this case, that's probably poor hacking or, or not thinking it all the way through because you spent all this time getting on that device and then you brick it because you didn't turn the difficulty or the, you, know, you didn't turn that down, down a little bit. Hey, let's just throw this thing and run it full steam and then break the thing that we spent all this time trying to get on. That doesn't make any sense. So, I think hackers will get a little bit smarter and start sneaking these things on. Um, and it doesn't take much to, uh, in the markets that we're in today, it doesn't take much to mine a coin that, or an altcoin that is pennies right now. That could be dollars just six months from now. And so, yeah, the di- with the difficulty low and the low GPU power, doesn't take much to get thousands of coins that could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we, and if you say to me, Christian, oh, that's not going to happen. That's what his Bitcoin story, <laughs> right? We laughed at them uh, six, seven, eight, nine years ago when people were mining that stuff. So I don't know. It's, it's certainly very interesting. Yeah, no, without a doubt. So, all right, enough about Bitcoin. I give up. We're going, we're going back to the cheese here to, to wrap up the show. I, I promise the worst passwords of 2017. Yes. I, I can't. This is awesome. This is my favorite part. I can't do an end of the year show without talking about the words passwords. I just can't. So, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six made the top one, which is awesome. Uh, it continues to it continues to be one of the number one passwords we see on honeypots too. So that's cool. Um, believe it or not, more popular than the number two, which is password. Your password is password. Um, QWERTY still hits the number four. Okay, you know, you have all the different variations of numbers in order. So one, two, three, four, five, six. For some reason, people think six digits is safe. No, it's really just the minimum password. Character length is usually six digits. So um, that that's how that becomes the number one. But some people feel more secure when they add a seven, a seven, eight, or a seven, eight, nine to the end. So those all make it in various forms in the top 10. Um, football made it in the top 10. Fascinating. Um, I love you. Like I get really warm and fuzzy when I realize that makes the top 10. Um, my favorite addition to the list this year was that star Wars was the 16th most popular used password of 2017. So the force clearly awakened in all the electronic devices in our world, because it is now in the top 20 most commonly used passwords by brute force. Um, totally spectacular. Um, also making it on the list this year was a fascinating choice of trust no one, T-R-U-S-T-N-O with the number one at the end. Um, inspirational, truly. And um, maybe the most passive of them all was the password of whatever. Um, if I thought my logins were as important as whatever, I I don't know how I'd live with myself. So that's um, kind of scary. But um, What about freedom? Freedom is up there. 22. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they're trying to liberate their accounts to as many people <laughs> as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the, the old ones have stayed. Uh, 
the the one two three four five six and the qwerty permutations don't surprise me. Those have those have dominated the list for years. But I think the Star Wars one showing up is nothing short of totally awesome. Um, also, really not sure why human. Uh, I, this has got to be like a human bioscience thing. But monkey makes the top fifteen, coming in at number thirteen. And I like out of all the animals you could pick, why do people gravitate towards the word monkey? Um, the best guess I have is that it's our closest ancestor in the human genome, but that we feel obligated to um, call out the monkey in our in our password security. But honestly, I have no idea why that's the animal of choice here. We Christian, we should say this is a list from over five million passwords leaked in the data breaches this year. So if they're they're just going out and grabbing stuff that's already public and mining through it to get this information, which is kind of brilliant in a way to 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 get that you know, to be able to get that data. Oh yeah. I mean, without a doubt. So, um, this is typically how they do it in years past with a combination of, um, combination of, um, see there, there was a train thought and it just, <laughs> just was gone. Just, just, just history. I see your last sentence. It'll come back. I promise. Oh, if I say, Oh yeah, go ahead. It's usually a combination of the data breaches that have that public data set and honeypots, right? These firms that measure, they put out a lot of honeypots to try and um, supplement their data where they can't get it otherwise. So um, that doesn't, um, it's actually a pretty sample uniform data set. So it's not as spot checky as people might think at first. So. Christian, before we go, um, machine learning and AI have been the, the the buzzwords of 2017. I I can't I can't look for a job. I can't read an article from BuzzFeed without somebody saying AI and machine learning in this. Have we really made? I mean, as you think about 2016, 2017, in what you know of machine learning and AI, the way it's supposed to be. You know, you know when the trendy media is saying it, they have no idea what they're talking about. Like, come on. Do you think we've made some progress in 2017 in that arena? Are we really doing AI and machine learning at this point, or are we just saying it because it sounds trendy? Uh, you know, it's funny because I think it's a huge victory that um, we have stopped using the word big data as the number one trending whatever. Like, the fact that we've evolved our... our um, our lingo to be these other two words, like it, it brings a warm, fuzzy feeling to my heart because people rallied around the Doug Cutting's yellow elephant, AKA Hadoop and the word big data for so long. Like you could see the redness in their face and how winded they were getting. Cause they just had no idea what they were talking about. So you had this huge population of people who love to say the word big data. And there was a point at time of when we talk about crazy, kind of like how Bitcoin has had its periods of crazy, you could, and I'm not even exaggerating at this point, like go read articles about it online. You could walk in a job fair in 20, anywhere from like 2012 to 2015, you could walk in a job fair, say the words big data and Hadoop in the same sentence and have a job offer a week later. They would, they would do nothing to check. You actually had any idea what you were talking about, but the fact that you could use those two words in the same sentence made you an incredibly special commodity. It didn't matter if you had no idea what you were actually saying. If you could figure out as a human being how to use those two words, you were the hottest thing since sliced bread and they had to have you as a developer or whatever. Um, I think the fact that people have finally gotten some healthy reality check around big data has helped influence the expectations a lot. Um, the good news here is that um, that has allowed the real underlying technologies, machine learning and AI to be now the buzzwords of the default. Um, let me just say a couple things here. Um, machine learning doesn't happen without big data. That is to say, without making the buzzword problem worse here, you can't do machine learning without a data set. And preferably you can't do unbiased machine learning or um, kind of unsupervised machine learning without a large data set that's kind of constantly flowing at the algorithm. So 
I see big successes in big data in 2017 in the sense that infrastructure for big data has become readily available and at low cost. Um, Amazon uh, Web Services just released a big, um, uh, some new machine learning offerings and especially in cloud in general now, like we're making it super affordable for people to just kind of one click run machine learning analytics over sample data sets and figure out how to play with this stuff. So the, again, if we're talking about, we, we measure our trends in the technology industry by financial price points. The fact that these things are at a affordable consumer price point on the cheap to be able to experiment with these technologies means you no longer even really have to be a, quote unquote, expert or knowledgeable in the field, we're now getting to a point where big data can become a consumer or a power user hobby and and not just um, something for the the deep technologist, um, which is, is really important, right? So machine learning and AI can't advance when there is no data model, like period, full stop, end of discussion. When you look at how AI is trained, when you learn how robotics evolve, when you learn how machine learning algorithms develop, all hinges around the fact that we now suddenly are sitting on wealths of data that we can harness in an easy to use fashion. So I think this was a point in the in the hyper growth curve and, and adoption rates in 2017 was that I think people finally got off their high of saying the word big data. I think there's finally some more realistic expectations around what it means to have big data. Um, I think when we talk about AI, it's a little bit more removed in the sense that there are cases for AI that are very data dependent and cases for AI where the self-generating data model is sufficient. Um, So for example, things like self-driving cars or... um, you know, some of the advanced robotics that come out of Google Labs, they're they're doing artificial intelligence in a way that doesn't require a data set prior necessarily. The data set is all the sensory input that happens real time in those devices, right? So we talk about real time data versus these large silos of data that infrastructure maintains for us so that we can gain and glean new, new trends and analytics. So, um, from that perspective, AI forks a little bit, but machine learning less so. Uh, machine learning is really, at the end of the day, what I call advanced statistics. So we've built statistical models and new math inferences to basically solve old problems. The difference is that now, because we can look, look at such a large scope of data in such a cheap manner, the computer beats the human at the game and can start to see patterns and trends that we cannot and make um Uh, make two things that seem unrelated to the human very related in a mathematical world. Um, And so this is very important. I think in 2018, that is going to advance. I think like what naturally now that infrastructure has caught up, the next thing that needs to catch up is the algorithmic development. So I think you're going to see more time and development spent in developing the next types of machine learning algorithms that go beyond some of the statistical models and methods that we've defined today. Um, and I think you'll see artificial intelligence um, benefit from that. And I think when people think AI, they think mostly like, oh, the robots are coming to kill us, which is a, is a portion of AI. But um, there's a lot of AI that happens in, it, it's kind of one step removed from the predictive stuff that ML can do for folks. Um, but, you know, AI as it pertains to um, making decisions, being a... Um, a customer, uh, sorry, a patient assistant for doctors curing cancer. Like that's the type of AI that um, really relies on machine learning and big data as related technologies to make itself successful. When we talk about Watson having the equivalent medical knowledge of a med student, um, that's an AI that comes from those other fields being more developed. Um, when we talk about AI and like robotics, um, and and actual like physical moving parts and um, recreating neuro capabilities, modeling of the human brain, et cetera. Um, Age old problem in artificial intelligence is that to this day, we have not been able to really model 
the true way in which the brain thinks and computes as the conscious. We know we use about anywhere from 5 to 10% of what our brain's actual computational capacity is. Um, and that's over the course of evolution. So, you know, we have not yet found the type of AI that allows us to innately have that capability. And like the the classic example is like, an, what is what was the whole point of a neural network in our AI? It was to try and um, basically mimic this idea that humans have neurons and a nervous system, and your brain fires neural synapses when it learns a new pattern or tries to record short-term or long-term memory. Um, much in the same way, neural networks they they fire syn- quote-unquote synapses that change weights in the algorithm that allow it to preference and learn certain facts over time. Um, but again, this is a this is a artificial means of reproducing a capability that we truly and innately don't understand in a biological sense and, and have not figured out how to solve in a technological sense. Yeah. Um, I think the, the omen continues to hang over the AI industry's head and will... This will not go away for quite some time, which is the predictions around um, AI, quote unquote, taking over the human race and being very dangerous. And we have to be super careful. And like a lot of people laugh at that right now. Um, and I think for good reason. I really, I don't think we're as as close to this doomsday scenario as some of the contrarians in the technology industry would have you think. Um, but you know, some of what Elon Musk and other folks have to say is pretty valid. Like AI has surprised us in ways that we haven't really expected. For example, um, we've talked about on the show in 2017, how um, they programmed essentially, they, they had a, they had a learning algorithm and an AI bot. And I don't remember what the exact purpose of it was, but it basically was tasked with uh learning language without any prior knowledge, right? So you're, you're throwing a bunch of just random language at it with no context of like, what is grammar? What are words? Like you give it nothing. And the computer is supposed to use artificial intelligence to figure out like, what the heck is talking to me? What does it mean? Et cetera, et cetera. And eventually once it figures out what is happening, it's supposed to be able to talk to other machines using the language it's learned, much like how do children learn how to speak when they're babies, right? Like this is kind of the experiment that they were recreating with with AI. And what they found was eventually the the computer algorithm deviated from its intention. And instead of using I as a subject of a sentence, it started using uh, I, it would put I like nine or 10 times in the sentence. And it was changing the form and structure of language to be what it needed to be more efficient. And it basically ended up coming up with a version of English that would make no sense to you or me in terms of talking, but was more efficient for the computer to to talk to the other AI bots um, and, and manipulate the language. So that was something that developers never programmed into the system, got a little freaked out when the system managed to do it on its own. Um, these are the types of things, like they're cute, small scenarios. Um, the worry is that what happens in 10 years when that happens at a larger scale uh, with something else we're experimenting with. In terms of trends for 2018, I think all this is like, out of the minds of people, right? Your average guy is looking at 2018 as being a year where uh, machine learning and AI will continue to help business and enterprise in some serious ways. I think healthcare and financial markets are the two biggest places we're seeing impact on machine learning algorithms, especially. Um, That, and in terms of like protecting from fraud and and bank fraud and financial fraud, in terms of um, patient healthcare and improving that, there's just there's several kind of very nice consumer areas where these technologies have a very real world impact. So I think we'll continue to see that grow um, and become readily available. And I think there will continue to be a need for it. Um, I 
I think AI kind of plays the same role as it pertains to those related technologies. I think AI is continuing to also, though, get more advanced at solving harder problems we're having, like in cybersecurity, like automated mechanisms for defending something you've never seen before. Um, so I expect those technologies to be able to play in those markets pretty seriously in 2018. It's not the fad that it was two or three years ago in terms of uh, it not being very feasible for the average company to implement. They've definitely matured the technology in several major ways that will allow us to see, I think, a continuing growth and adoption rate and into 2018. Yeah, and I actually see, you know, sometimes in these technologies, you got to follow the money. You mentioned healthcare a couple times. I, I think there's an area of AI where uh, when we're dealing with the human body, the complexity of it, that machines can understand what we're, what, what's going on in our body much faster than a doctor who's taking blood pressure and, and checking your tongue and looking in your ears. And, and I know it's, it's way more complicated than that, but I, I think, you know, we're dealing with problems at the nanoscale and, and this is a perfect area for data in AI to really uh, plunge into and figure out um, because we continue to be sicker and sicker and, and causing more and more problems. And so I think if we dive into an area, this is an area, you know, uh, e Elon Musk has certainly made the, 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 in Google, what's going on. Well, I should, we should say alphabet now what's going on there with them and self-driving cars and some of the stuff that they're doing. Um, there's some real practical implications behind that, and and those decision-making processes that have to happen in those environments uh, are quick and rapid and can't be done necessarily by a person. Um, and so I just, I, I mean, I really think in healthcare, I think of all these devices that we wear and the power of the data. I mean, I generate, I, I generate a ton of data every day by the Fitbit that's on my arm. Imagine if it was really doing something that I was just saying the other day, I'd love to have it be tracking my workouts and then be tracking all the vitals around it as well to say, for it to be able to tell me, hey, you're you're actually improving and this is in these areas because it's got this big gigantic data set over time. And uh, today we get, okay, so, you know, you put in your own weight, you put in, you know, some of these things. There's not a lot of smart stuff behind that just yet. Um where we're able for the average consumer, we're able to make kind of better decisions in real time or the gamification of healthcare in real time. If I got some kind of notice saying, you know, hey, I see you're looking at that donut, like, dude, back away from the donut. That would be, you know, that that could be the gamification of that could be really, really helpful. So um, I think that's a, I think when we think about machine learning and AI, I think healthcare is a perfect space for it to really grow out. And we're going to see it in transportation for sure. Right. I mean, it's, it is coming. Self-driving trucks are going to come before we know it. And um, they're going to be on a road near you. The problem will be the humans. Again, the humans are the weakest link the weakest. in all of this because we're unpredictable because we have emotions, right? Because we're greedy and because we get angry. A machine never breaks the law. A machine doesn't have any greed. A machine never does anything in its own best interest, right? All those, all those laws that are out there for robotics. So today, the problem is us. We we do all those things, and we'll, we'll cause way more accidents than a than a self driving car ever will. So, right. Um, all right. Good stuff. Anything else you want to? Cool. No, that's close it with. We good. Wrap. All right. I'll remind folks. Uh, well, we're back on track in 2018. I said that a bunch of times. Eh, about once a month is probably what we average. If we get two, it'll be fantastic. In a month, Christian and I will get these put together. But uh, don't forget, it, it, this is all powered by Maple Grove Partners, secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. And uh, if you need that, maplegrovepartners.com. Check that out. Christian had mentioned early in the show, you probably have it, but Jingle has a nice little jingle to it. And uh, if you want to head out there, there's um, Jingle will get you $10 off your order. Through the holiday season ends July 31st, 2018. Head out there, put Jingle in there when you set your order. Also, don't forget if you have questions, comments, or you like Christian to talk about something, you know, I know nothing, but Christian knows a few things that are out there. Send us an email. You can send it to me, although it's better to send it to Christian. So just send it to Christian at theaverageguy.tv. Uh, you can do that uh, via email or track him down on Twitter at Borg Whisper. Christian, are you tweeting much or is that pretty much just a? Uh, place to receive uh, uh, news. tweet occasionally but i usually didn't just like to read these days yeah. I, my days of the python twitter bot empire have uh 
kind of come to a, a close now that Jim has passed me threefold. So uh, <laughs> yeah, just, just relegating in, in the reading now. Yeah. Although I backed off a little bit, uh, it's, it's, it's come back as I think many of those were just bots that I passed you. So don't, don't feel too bad, Christian. If you like Cyber Frontiers, and uh, we'd ask that you share it. So drop it out then, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. We'll be back uh, in 2018 with some new programs. We want to thank you for subscribing and for listening. And for those listening live, we'll say goodnight, everybody. Good night.